Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I'm your other co-host, Connor McNish-Stratton. And as always, we have a great poem for you here today, our regular format. We read the poem, we talk about the poem, we read the poem again. Uh, Today, our poem is Pulled Over in Short Hills, New Jersey, 8 a.m. by Ross Gay. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Uh, Ross Gay is uh, a really wonderful poet. His latest book is Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry, the National Book Award finalist, and it won the 2016 uh, Kinsley Tufts Poetry Award from Claremont Graduate University. Um, He himself is a professor uh, of poetry at Indiana University and at Drew University's Low Residency MFA. And he's also on the board of the Bloomington Community Orchard. Uh, And a lot of nature imagery tends to infuse his poetry. But his, his latest book, particularly, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, is just like overflowing with the natural world. I've heard stories maybe even legends of poets and writers visiting Roske's garden. And apparently it's incredible. One day, I feel like that's the sign that you've made it as if you <laughs> hung out in his garden. Um, but he's apparently very serious about it. So I, I'm not at all surprised. It's like <laughs> the depth of horticultural knowledge to go along with his overall appreciation of the natural world is like really quite something. I would love to hang out in his garden. That sounds cool. Sounds really cool. Yeah, it does. I know. It's like, um, I mean, he's a much better guy than this guy, but Jonathan Franzen is like obsessed with bird watching. And so every like article that's about him is like, like profiling him is like, and then we did what everyone else does is go watch birds. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like an obligatory, obligatory bird paragraph. Um, But yeah, so that's Ross Gay, a really accomplished and only more accomplished in the recent past poet. Uh, I guess Ross Gay is a a poet of color, is important to know before the poem may be. Um, So here it is. Pulled over in Short Hills, New Jersey, 8 a.m. by Ross Gay. It's the shivering. When rage grows hot as an army of red ants and forces the mind to quiet the body the quakes emerge, sometimes just the knees, but at worst through the hips, chest, neck, until like a virus slipping inside the lungs, the pulse, every ounce of strength tapped to squeeze words from my taut lips, his eyes scanning my car's insides, my eyes, my license, And as I answer the questions three, four, five times, my jaw tight as a vice, his hand massaging the gun butt, I imagine things I don't want to. And inside, beg this to end before the shiver catches my hands and he sees and something happens. Damn. It's so good. Such a good poem. It's so good. There's so many different small things about it that make it so good. Um, But in terms of why I picked this, there was a short journey I went on to get to it when we were talking about picking poems for this. Because initially, looking for a poem, I was going to pick like a happy summer poem of some sort. (laughs) That was where it started. And so I began with Emily Dickinson 
and imperceptibly is grief. But that led me to another poem called Here There Are Blueberries, which led me down this whole horticultural rabbit hole, which got me back to Ross Gay and reading some of the books from his, some of the poems from his latest book. And then it led me to this poem that he wrote about the death of Eric Garner. He reflects on the fact that Eric Garner worked for the Parks Department in New York City for a while. And so he may have planted trees, which are now growing. And of course, trees take CO2 out of the air and put oxygen into it, making it easier for us to breathe. And Eric Garner was choked to death. So it's like a whole incredible, it's, it's a great, it's another amazing like short poem. Um, and I was also reflecting on the fact that uh, the spot where Eric Garner died was very near where I used to live on Staten Island. And in fact, where the first six episodes of this podcast were recorded. Um, Connor and I walked directly past it after recording on his way to the ferry. And I walked past the spot every day on my commute. But in thinking about that recent history and coming across this poem, what struck me about this poem is that it was written in 2006. So 12 years ago. Um, and really the contemporary, broader popular culture conversation around the relationship, particularly of people of color and the police and the violence that is regularly done uh, by police disproportionately to marginalized communities uh, really began basically around the late summer of 2014. And it's crazy to think that it is that recent, but also the fact that that conversation has been happening in a very similar form is something that this poem had me reflecting on. So that was my sort of circuitous journey to this poem that I don't know if that really means anything, but it felt like it meant something as I was going through it. Yeah, and I just, I was uh, reading this poem and also sort of reflecting on the the legacy of um, racism and specifically like anti-black racism and police brutality, um, et cetera. And I was, um, I was also thinking back to our very first episode that we did about the election and that um, it was kind of this like, whoa, like the world is bad. Or like, it seemed like a huge surprise to a lot of people, but a lot of people of color were like, yeah. Like this is just <laughs> like no the, just taking off the mask or whatever, um, right. and this feels like something of an example of of you know the conversation and the the material um, harm happening you know long before and incessantly up until and through the conversation sort of reached um, like the wider mainstream. Um, and just at like one interesting and equally sad um, example of that is in the Jim Crow era from like 1936 to 1966, this, it was started by this guy, Victor Hugo Green, who is a postal service worker, but he published this thing that became known as the Green Book, um, which was like a travel guide for black Americans. Um, which sort of like indicated uh, like which hotels would sort of serve black people, which restaurants, et cetera, um, what towns were to, towns you should avoid, which were like often uh, what they called sundown uh, towns, which were, they had signs that were 
indicated that all black people needed to be gone from the town once the sun set and just speaks to the the sort of very long long history of black americans under threat and specifically while traveling you know it's this kind of um there's this other danger of of being in the kind of liminal space of travel where you're not in your own home community which admittedly also is not safe because police are there etc um but that there's a sort of like uh interesting travel like specific threat um that sort of comes across in in the ross gay poem when he's sort of being pulled over by the cops yeah um, and you're you're totally on your own when you're traveling in a way that you're even if your community is unsafe you may have more resources or more that's really interesting what the green book speaks to is the degree to which conversations can be going on within marginalized uh communities or oppressed communities and can be completely separated from and unknown to the hegemonic discourse or the the powers of the patriarchy, uh, the white patriarchy in this case, um, because this was a field guide for movement. It was a well-known resource to families and people at the time. And most white people probably had no clue it existed. Um, and I think that sadly was the case for many, many, many years about the relationship of um, particularly black people to the police. And also just as an added detail in the this article about the Green Book, not only was it sort of, I think probably circulated um, in a more underground fashion or something perhaps, but the way that it was written was also coded so that if a white person like were to find it, they wouldn't like, so for example, um, there's this paragraph, they're talking about traveling and it's like, you know, hence this guide has made traveling more popular without encountering embarrassing situations. And like the phrase embarrassing situations is clearly like a euphemism for anything from being like denied service to, you know, potentially lethal violence or something. Um, but there's even, you know, like even at the level of language, there's a, an awareness always um, of the sort of hegemonic discourse perhaps, and a, and a way of talking about things that will on the one hand, be informative to the intended audience, and on the other hand, not like alert or alarm or anger the the sort of people in power or whatever. What's interesting to me about this poem is that it does almost the opposite of what one of those more uh, coded texts would, in that it is trying to decode this interaction in a way that the reader can understand the feeling of what's going on for the person in the poem. Uh, and is really trying to break down the physicality of that experience and the visceral fear and the way that that manifests uh, so that if somebody, uh, like I've been pulled over by the police. I've never felt like this when that happened. I've been nervous, like generally nervous a little bit, like why is this happening? I didn't do anything, what's going on? But like not this feeling even close. 
and the interaction I had was nothing like this. But by reading this poem, I can start to get a window into this world. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, it's almost like scientific in its detail. It's like the physiology of being, um, you know, terrified for your life. And also it seems like there's this kind of conflict in the, in the poem that the speaker has, which on the one hand, um, is like trying to be totally still. And then on the other hand is the, like the terror, like the flight response or, or something, or the fight response if, you know, cause the, the beginning, um, you know, is when rage grows hot as an ar army of red ants. There's this kind of other impulse in the body that's like, which I imagine that, you know, is like operating on the level of like the involuntary nervous system. It's like an autonomic thing um, that is trying to make the body do all these things. Um, and so there's this kind of like internal, uh, like really tense situation like at the level of the body that's like even below the conscious mind or something, which the poem sort of is like really narrowing in on in great detail. I mean, the, the, probably the time span that the poem covers, you know, is, you know, a few minutes possibly. Um, he answers a question three, four, five, times um so could be maybe 10 minutes but um a lot of it seems to be happening in a, in a very concentrated amount of time so definitely i like that you talk about how it's happening below the level of conscious thought because the fear itself isn't quite personified but its journey is described as being separate from consciousness and at one point is even likened to a virus it's something unwanted that has come into the body that is causing it to react the way it is not the way that uh the speaker would like it to uh at the beginning it says forces the mind to quiet the body my conscious thought needs to be put to the task of quelling this involuntary response yeah yeah at every turn the speaker is sort of having things in himself do things to him, basically. Um, like rage grows and then that rage is what forces the mind to then quiet the body. Um, and then the quakes emerge. Uh, and then as Jack was talking about, you know, spread like a virus and strength is trying to squeeze words from the lips. Um, and and then at the end, which I love, um, is and and he's imagining things that he doesn't want to, um, which is sort of another thing where like even then, even like his you know sort of imaginative brain, sort of like upper level brain is 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 thinking of you know death scenarios presumably, um, which obviously he doesn't want to do, and then. And then it's um, he begs it to end before the shiver catches my hands and he sees and something happens. So the shiver is ultimately the thing that would catch his hands. Um, and the shiver would be like sort of like what's what's the agent 
for that movement or whatever. Um, so it's a very, there's a very like deliberate framing of this interaction as, as the, the speaker, as the passenger being like totally at the whims, A, of his body, and then sort of B, ultimately, if his body kind of like doesn't um, do what he wants, or if he's just unlucky, then at the whims of the police officer. The levels of powerlessness that get layered on and the swirl-like nature of the thoughts that come as a result. I think because the poem is short and covers a lot of ground, it feels like a lot is happening all the time. And because it's being reported to us by the speaker all at once, it feels like a lot of thoughts, like a very crowded, distraught mind at work. Yeah. And I think that feeling definitely comes through because you also get these like very fast flickers of specific physical markers. So you don't just get detailed description of what's going on inside the speaker. You also get this very quick impressionistic description of the different specific items of like, what is this police officer doing and how am I reacting to it? And what does that mean? Um, that comes directly after the detailing of the physicality of the speaker. Then it starts talking about what's the police officer doing? What's going on beyond my car, which I think is also interesting and also just adds to the rapid fire nature of it because you're moving from inside the speaker to outside the speaker to back inside. It's like very fast moving in that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love that. Um, and also I think what helps create that sensation of a lot going on and very crowded is the poem is only two sentences in total. Um, and the first sentence is just, it's the shivering. And then the second sentence is literally the whole rest of the poem, all the way from when rage grows down to the very end when something happens. So there's this kind of like huge run on. Um, and in, in the run on, there's just like a lot of, um, the sentence is very naughty kind of, uh, you know, the quakes emerge and the quakes, uh, is a line break and then emerge. Um, so there's this kind of jarringness there. Um, and then sometimes just the knees, but comma at worst comma through the hips, comma chest, neck until. Um, so there's like a lot of clumping and um, knottedness, I think, in the sort of synt syntax, um, which I think that plus the fact that the sentence is so long creates the sensation of this one moment that is like so full and fraught. It's like one long choppy sentence. There are, I just counted, there are 21 commas in this sentence, which really speaks to exactly what you were saying. The sentence keeps it all in one place, but there are so many different things happening all at once in that one space. And also another sort of like formal um, element that I think at least helps, because um, I think there's a risk in terms of craft is just getting lost or, you know, you have this long sentence and it's very complicated, but then at some point, you know, you, you want to direct the reader to like, you know, the important moments or whatever. And there's a noticeable um, shortening of the lines toward the end, um, yeah. which I think 
you could probably hear, but but basically, you know, in the middle of the poem, there's a line that's um, until like a virus slipping inside the lungs. But then by the end, the last three lines are before the shiver catches my, and then it's a line break, hands and he sees, and then there's a line break and something happens. Um, and so those last two lines especially are, you know, a third or a half the length of most of the other lines. And so there's a kind of um, coming towards that head of like, this is um, like what all of this, you know, where the, the fortune could go this way or that or whatever. Um, and yeah, and so I think that was a very skillful thing um, to kind of like give us the, the fraught, complicated, out of control feelings inside, but then still direct us toward sort of the culminating moment. Yeah, very good. Gotta, gotta learn from that. And the culminating moment in itself does not resolve the tension of the poem at all. It in fact heightens it to a, a fever pitch and then just stops. Uh, we were recently talking about Christopher Nolan's 2010 film Inception. And in some <laughs> ways it's like that wobbling uh, spindle <laughs> at the end of Inception. You just, you don't know. There's just fear. Right. And in fact, the images that lead into the end are the most explicitly dangerous. And they also draw, I think, an interesting connection between the police officer and the speaker because you get these very quick. Um, it sort of starts when the speaker is noticing where the police officer is looking because it says his eyes scanning my car's insides, my eyes, my license. So this connection right in the same line that starts his eyes ends my eyes. So they are looking directly at each other, but the police officer is clearly looking for any signs of like, oh, is this person dangerous? Are they looking around, you know, on edge? And there's a fear on the part of the speaker that he will look the wrong way, that he'll do something with, well, it doesn't say if it's a male or female person in the poem. It seems like it would be gay writing from his own experience, but we don't really know. But the speaker in the poem reflects on their eyes and is, clearly aware of the dangers inherent and possibly appearing quote unquote, like they were being shifty with their eyes or something. Um, and then a little bit later on, my jaw tight as a vice, his hand massaging the gun, but I imagine things I don't want to and inside beg this to end before the shiver catches my hands and he sees and something happens. So first there's the connection between uh, his eyes and my eyes and then there's his hand which is on the gun the greatest source of fear that is causing the trembling and the shivering and then the fear that if that shiver gets into the speaker's hands on the wheel that that would indicate some kind of nervousness or spark something off in uh the police officer and so again you have this direct connection his hand then leads into my hands and the sort of circular nature of how these kinds of interactions can escalate uh, based on the fear that a police officer might instill in someone that they don't understand or that they, the way that somebody reacts to being afraid can then just put them in more danger. Yeah, yeah, I, I am loving all of that. Um, 
And I also am thinking about the end. It's a very interesting ending because you're absolutely right that it sort of brings the tension exactly up until the moment when like if it was, if we're talking about narrative, the climax would happen, but um, it's like almost there and then it ends. And so we're sort of left hanging. Um, but the ending also is like a very understated, very deliberately understated almost and vague way of putting it. So it's like, <clears throat> you know, it's not like he sees and then maybe he's going to draw his gun or something. The end is something happens, um, which I think is very interesting for a few reasons because um, on the one hand, it's it's sort of like everything up until then has been nothing happening. And then it's like, maybe something will happen, which actually sort of, I think, um, speaks a lot to how sort of fucked up this whole thing is, is where um, people are just doing nothing and then they get shot basically, or exactly. you know, it's a exactly. twitch, of, it's a twitch of a hand or something like that. And so I think that by putting something happens at the very end sort of implies subtly that everything up until then is the anticipation of something that is still causing all of these like really stressful um, responses in the body, but nothing has actually happened at that point. Um, and then at the same time, it also um, suggests like, and I, I want to be careful about this and I'm curious what you think, but in the same way that the speaker is sort of framed as like often having sort of things being imposed on him, like the rage or the shiver catching his hand, something happens is... Um, has like agency that's like sort of vague. It's not the police officer doing something. It's not the um, passenger, it's not the speaker doing something. Um, and what this made me think of, because I don't think that one bad way of drawing, of reading that would be like clearing the police officer of like responsibility, which I don't think at all the poem is about. But I was sort of thinking about like how like racism works on a subconscious level a lot of the time um, and that there have been a lot of studies about sort of subconscious racial prejudice like generally, but also with police officers. There was one that was that sort of found that um, officers playing this like a video game were much quicker to shoot um, black people in the video game than they were to others, um, et cetera. And so <clears throat> although like the police officer is ultimately responsible, there's some way that that he has also been trained to to be an agent of, you know, the oppressive system. It, were he to, you know, pull out his gun or uh, whatever, um, there would be some part of that that, that could be this kind of same like involuntary muscle memory nervous system, um, you know, that's happening in the police officer, even as that's also sort of 
coming from this sort of like socialized and, um, you know, sort of uh, a cultured, um, inculcated racism or something over the course of his life. I don't know. I'm curious what you think about that. I wasn't sure if I was reading too much into something happens. <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting. And I think it shows up the most in the poem in that ending exactly. And he sees and something happens. And we basically understand that something happens means that gun comes out of its holster. Whether it's fired or not, we don't know. But this situation, something happens means that what's been going on escalates to a point of being probably deadly, probably life or death. And only one of these two people is likely to die if, quote unquote, something happens. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting reading. And I think that that is a large part of what is so disquieting for a lot of, yeah, that's that's what's happening oftentimes in these kinds of situations is that there is a lot of learned racial fear that comes to the surface for many of the white officers who end up shooting black people and brown people. There are so many stories of particularly black people who are reaching to get their license out after explicitly saying, I'm going to get my license out and then being shot. Philando Castile, who in his life was pulled over by the police over 40 times. Finally, one of those instances was fatal. It's something happens. At some point, something happens. And that's the fear on the part of the speaker is that like, we don't know if this is the first time this person's been pulled over or if this is the 40th time, but they know that that possibility is there because of the systems that operate on this police officer. So it's both an awareness on the part of the speaker of what's going on inside of them, but in the way that they describe what's going on with the officer and their awareness and the fear is because they know what this officer has likely learned and the assumptions that they are likely making. I agree with that a lot. Um, and I also think that was also making me think that everyone knows, I think, what something happens is implying. It still requires, even if the jump is immediate and obvious, it still requires an imaginative move from the reader to be like, something happens. Oh, what's that something? the police officer pulls his gun, shoots or whatever. Um, and I think that the move of sort of leaving that moment to the reader's imagination to sort of fill in the gap, even if it's like a very clear implication, um, I think is a really effective um, way to close the poem because, you know, it it's it's letting the reader do the work and they can sort of, feel in the same way you know it's interesting it's he spends so much time not leaving it to the imagination about what's going through his body and that sort of being what's the focus you know um of the poem and so then we get to the point where something happens which is the point that we will know when we can fill in the blanks and then there's this kind of transfer maybe um, where the reader's like, oh shit. Definitely. And also one of the scariest parts of the poem is how horrifying is it that no matter what, you know what something happens means. That speaks to how ingrained that kind of interaction is culturally and how, how wrong that is. Um, the fact that that can be left unsaid 
and everybody probably goes to the same place with it. That's maybe the most terrifying and awful thing that this poem points to. I mean, the individual and specific descriptions are frightening to put yourself into the subjectivity of the speaker, but that the one part that is not explained is so clear is really quite frightening. It's a haunting note to end on. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and another way of saying that is like, most times or many times in a poem, if you wrote something happens, if I was your teacher, I would be like, this is not specific. This is vague. You need to be concrete, uh, more specificity what here. What is happening? Um, because it's like the two most general words like <laughs> in, the, in the English language. Um, hey, tell so, me about your story, man. Yeah, well, something happens. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and so the fact that, and this is like an interesting example of like the way you, there are moments when you break the rules and then that breaking is actually like the most powerful part is the most general thing will have the probably the same very specific action in like so many readers. And the fact that that happens is, as you were saying, terrifying and horrible. Another thing too that I was thinking about, which has been talked about a lot in probably much better ways and more sophisticated ways than the way that I'm about to talk about it. Um, but there's like, I feel like this poem is getting at um, a really in-depth look at the psychological toll that, um, you know, this sort of like systemic racism has and then the specific threat of police brutality and killing. Um, is that, yes, um, you know, I think the stats are, I saw, maybe this is old, but, um, you know, there's the, the population of America is 13% black um, and 31% of all people killed by police um, in 2012 were black. Um, so that's, you know, hugely disproportionate. Um, but then the other part is the fact that everyone knows that. And so like the psychological toll of being black in America is, is this driving. And even if you aren't killed or even if you haven't been shot, you're insistently aware of the threat of death and that kind of stress um, which many studies I'm sure have been done, um, takes an enormous toll on your physical health, your mental health. Um, and so that's like the kind of ripple um, effect of, of these sorts of things. No, I think that's so true because you hear stories all the time of the inescapability of race. Um, Dave Chappelle, when he did his uh, monologue on SNL, was talking about the difference between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, which is that he can't retire from being Black. You can retire from being a police officer. You can take off the uniform. You cannot stop being a Black person in the United States. Uh, James Blake, one of the top 
male tennis players from the United States in the last 20 years was tackled outside of a hotel in New York City during the US Open because he quote unquote looked like a suspect who was escaping from the police. Just standing there, he got tackled. I produced a documentary about a federal judge. He and his law clerk who had gone to Harvard were out, you know, dressed in fancy suits, going out to dinner and were placed in the worst table at a restaurant. He was coming out of a meeting where he was elected the chair of the Bicentennial Committee of Federal Judges, the same committee that would place plaques bearing his name on every courthouse in the country. He walked out of the meeting and a guy walked up to him and said, boy, park my car because he thought he was a a bellhop. Like, it doesn't matter what level of success you attain. There's no escaping this reality. Anybody, this the speaker is not given a gender or an age. I, I read it as being Ross Gay, but it's never explicitly yeah. said. One other thing that I was thinking about with the poem, are there interesting contrasts that happen? Um, and I'm not exactly sure. I'm still at the point where I just noticed them and I'm like, that's a contrast. So I got to answer the so what question. That would be my, if I was a, my composition teacher self. Um, but there's a hot and cold, I feel like a little bit kind of contrast in the beginning in that shivering, um, which proves very important. One has like the, the shivering from fear, but also, you know, has this cold connotation to it. Um, but then when rage grows hot as an army of red ants and forces, um, so I, there's just this very, I feel like immediate kind of tension between temperatures almost. Um, but then the other one that I noticed that I thought was interesting was that the speaker is very tight, um, taut lips, jaw tight as a vice, um, and then I thought the word choice massaging was a really interesting move because the the cop is sort of doing an action to his his gun that you know would relieve tightness, you know, would relax. Um, so there's a kind of um, opposition there. Um, I don't really know where I was that goes, but um, I felt like those were. Interesting. <laughs> I have I have two thoughts. That is interesting. Um, with the massaging, it almost makes you think that the police officer is loosening up the gun itself and almost preparing for its use. Because you feel like massaging, it could just say his hand resting on the gun butt. And it would still be terrifying and it would still set the stage for the end. But by saying massaging, it's active. It's not just sitting there. It's sort of working around on it. And it does give the the feeling to me of sort of getting ready for possibly using in a way that resting or holding or any other number of descriptors wouldn't quite give that feeling. Um, and on the subject of tautness, at least for me, having recently read the book Native Son, uh, which is not probably the connection that's being made here in the poem, but the word tautness and tightness comes up all the time when Bigger Thomas is describing himself. Um, And he talks about his taut muscles constantly. And as a, the book then later draws the connection that this is probably 
a result of these systems that have worked upon him to make him feel this way about himself, uh, which is an instance of intense subjectivity being described as a way to illustrate how oppressive systems can have an impact on an individual. And there's all sorts of discourse around how that novel is and is not problematic by contemporary standards and with a full reading of it. Um, but that was my immediate connection between tautness and tightness coming up a couple times in this poem. Um, and another instance where it's, it's sort of quasi almost sort of similar. Yeah, that's really interesting. The last thing that I wanted to bring up that I find sort of interesting is the specificity of the title. And the thing that mainly leaps out at me is that it specifically says Short Hills, New Jersey, um, because that feels to me like it is very carefully signaling this is not the South and this is not necessarily rural. There are more rural parts of New Jersey, sort of, but it's basically the industrial Northeast and that something like this happens all over the country um, is an important thing to note. And I think that the title is doing some work towards pointing in that direction. Yeah, and that it's 8 a.m. It's like, it's not, I don't know. I don't know why I think the mornings are safer, but like it's not at night. It's rush know. hour, it's commute time. Everybody's on their way to work. This yeah. person could be driving to work. I think it puts yeah. it into a very heteronormative time, if there is one. It's sort of like how uh, Gwendolyn Brooks talks about, you know, she picked June, jazzing June as this action of like taking the most cliche heteronormative month where everybody gets married, all the white folks get married basically, and like jazz June, really mess it around. I feel like that's sort of what 8 a.m. is in this poem. It's like, this is the time, right? Like I leave my apartment at basically around eight every morning to go to work for my nine to, my nine thirty to five thirty job. That's pretty much when I leave every day, and that's what everybody on my train is doing, and that's what everybody who's out in their cars, who are in a long line as I cross the street here in in Brooklyn, that's what everybody's doing at that time of the day. Um, so it almost like makes the speaker's activities implicitly as just benign as possible. Like this person is probably just on their way to their job and this is what happens. Right, right, I think that's right. Should we read it again? Yeah, I think so. Pulled over in Short Hills, New Jersey, 8 a.m. by Ross Gay. It's the shivering. When rage grows hot as an army of red ants and forces the mind to quiet the body the quakes emerge sometimes just the knees but at worst through the hips chest neck until like a virus slipping inside the lungs and pulse every ounce of strength tapped to squeeze words from my taut lips his eyes scanning my car's insides my eyes my license and as i answer the questions three four five times my jaw tight as a vice, his hand massaging the gun butt. I imagine things I don't want to, and inside beg this to end before the shiver catches my hands, and he sees, and something happens. Hey, everyone.
everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us, because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is CloseTalkingPoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest close talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts Uh, we're also available in addition to itunes on stitcher and soundcloud thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again next time